You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features part two of my conversation with Kadarius Colbert. Now, just to refresh your memory, Kadarius is a senior facilities planner for the Santa Ana Unified School District. At the end of part one, Kadarius discussed his decision to leave a stable job in his home state of Texas. He headed to D.C. without another opportunity in place and eventually made his way to California. Of course, we spoke in great detail about that transition, as well as Kadarius's commitment to making an impact in his chosen profession. In part one, if you recall, Kadarius also recounted his relationship with one of the greatest influences in his life, his grandmother. Later in the conversation, we talked about what it was like to lose her, and in the years that followed, if he's been able to create a space for grief. And Kadarius came with the candor that we love so much on this show. So here's the rest of his story. Please enjoy. So you talked about moving to D.C. and then not having a job lined up, which is wild, right? Like that, that goes against everything we're taught. Like get, get a good job. You stay there. If something else better comes along. You take that. And you had a city job. You know how black folks feel about city job. Yes. That, that's it. That's it. Yo, you hit it because my family was like, boy, you got a job at the city. And I was like, this little job. Are y'all kidding me? But it had good benefits. That's, they would always talk about the benefits. If you got that job, don't leave that job. That's a good job, boy. You know, and uh, I could move up potentially in 10 years. Like the possibilities were endless. And I was like, I was the first black city planner. I felt like I, I was the only person in that office with a planning degree from the top planning schools in this country. I knew exactly what I was talking about. And I was often undermined and I had to sit and be silent. And that was that is just not me. And so um, I sat for two years. And I got up out of there because I applied to a couple of jobs. And I remember it was the, the, the day that Donald Trump was elected. I, I received a job offer in Dallas and uh, ended up not ultimately accepting uh, that role, um, but said, I want to be in D.C. And um, I, I wrote in my little journal because I felt like uh, I had wrote in my journal when I was living overseas that, hey, God, whatever you want me to do next, I'm going to do it. Um, and obviously he wanted me to go back home. I really wasn't up for that, but I kind of bucked a little bit and I was just like, God, I'm sick of being in Longview. Like this is depressing. I remember sitting on the floor of my sister's, uh, in a bedroom and my sister, cause I had, I was kind of strategizing. So I had moved in with my sister to save money for that move. And, uh, I sat down and I asked my mom, I said, mom, if I quit my job, will you support me? She said, baby, I've never seen you so defeated. And so she said, I'll support you. And whatever decisions you make. And uh, I reached out to a fraternity brother, uh, Dante, actually. And uh, Dante is like my little mentee, my little brother. And um, and and so if the tables kind of reversed, you know, you know, he was in a PhD program and I had helped him and uh, DeMariano do all, you know, I had like helped them get to their stuff. And, and they, you know, I look up to them now because they mm-hmm. are just brilliant young men. But um, so I quit the job in May and I go stay with Dante for a month and I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do? Cause first off this presidency, what happens right. for the next four years? And I'm like, oh, what, what am I going to do? 
Um, so I ended up literally doing, I, I, I went to DC, I stayed with him and was kind of moving around while I was there. I went to Indianapolis, um, spent some time, like a, maybe a week or so there, went to Flint, Michigan, went a friend, spent like two or three weeks there um, and was just kind of applying to jobs at this time, but really trying to figure out like what's the next step. Um, so I, I was on a Greyhound bus uh, for a lot, just throughout the Midwest. Not the um, Greyhound, though. A Greyhound, because uh, I couldn't be flying. And I, ain't, I couldn't jet sit because I didn't have no money. And uh, with the Telluride Association, they have these houses across the country. And one was at, in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. So um, I spent a week or so in Ann Arbor. And then that's how I ended up in Flint. And the water crisis was going on. And uh, as a city plan, planner, I fell, fell in love with that place. Um, and his mom, he's an only child. She was just like, you can stay, you can stay with us. And, um, uh, I was just like, I might, I really, so I was looking for jobs while I was there. Ultimately I ended up getting, uh, reaching out to a person who gave me an internship while I was in graduate school and, uh, reached out to her. She, she, um, reconnected me with a, a firm, a consulting firm that ultimately I ended up working for in DC, uh, for a couple of years and, uh, they moved me. I got there and I was like, oh, I finally got a job in D.C. One of my frat brothers that lived there had like a basement apartment randomly uh, that he wasn't leasing. It was a beautiful apartment. He let me stay there for free. Mm. Uh, and he was just like, one of my older frat brothers, I should say. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was just like, um, you can stay here as long as you need. And then I get I get the job. I'm staying there. I'm saving money. I'm stacking. I'm good. And then I am in that role and they say, hey, we want to move you out to the West Coast, to Irvine, California. I'm like, what is, where is that? And so I ended up being relocated um, out here to the middle of nowhere um, from Black DC to White Orange County. And so that's where I'm at now, but I left that consultant firm and I ended up working for a school district. I've been there for a year because um, I kind of ultimately keep, I keep fine-tuning my passion and like I know exactly what I want to do and I keep finding roles um, that facilitate that type of growth and professionalism so um, I've been here for going on three years um, and found my way on a planning commission I always find my way into some role of of service um, because I want to volunteer or give back or just get involved in something so that's kind of how I ended up in DC and DC Pivot, kicked me, kicked me out, and sent me over here to California, a place that I never desired to be. So I feel like urban planning, city planning, facilities planning—all these things are like terms that most of us lay people have like an opaque understanding of. But like, if you really ask us to get into the nitty gritty of what it is, we don't really know. Yeah. So, what is it that you do present day? Present day, I design schools. I design and program schools for kids, little kids, K twelve schools. And um, it's a really interesting field. Not a lot of people are aware, but uh, schools have to be designed and planned by people. Uh, They don't just appear. Uh, But the classrooms that you or any listener attended uh, was designed by somebody like me. Um, Understanding that I do enrollment projections to understand, like, how many kids are going to be here? Where will they be coming from? Um, And what does this classroom or learning environment look like? If it, if it is an existing school, um, how can I enhance this learning environment by either cultivating a program, like maybe it's a career in tech program and working with the architects. But right now I work under a, a school bond. And so we are 
updating all of our facilities that haven't been updated in maybe 60, 30 to 40 years. Some of our facilities are about 60 years old. So bringing those up to current standards and uh, seismic standards, since this is California and earthquakes are concerned. Um, so right now I am designing and modernizing every school facility for one of the largest school districts in the state of California and ensuring that not only are the facilities and classrooms the right size, but also um, that our enrollment uh, is is um, appropriate for that campus. Um, and also in thinking about enrollment decline, how we utilize uh, our existing assets that could be used in better ways. Um, and so I'm what we call optimizing a lot of our school sites and repurposing them. And so um, for I, it's called facilities planning, uh, but I'm a school planner in 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 that. But I think when you tell people, people are like, oh yeah, I, I guess I never thought about that. But I direct the architects. I literally give the architect the package of specs of everything that he needs in order to design a school. And I walk him through the design process and work with him on designing everything that I need. And then I pass it off to construction and I don't deal with dirt. So they do all of that. Uh, so that's, but that's kind of what I do. That's what so I So you mentioned at the beginning of this call that you're an advocate. Um, and thinking about the work that you do now, but also your education, how your career has progressed, you have an understanding, I'm sure, of zoning and sort of the history of how neighborhoods have become what they've become, right? And access to opportunity and quality education mm -hmm. and all those things and teacher to student ratio are much better in some areas than they are in others, right? So in a job that you have now in this really large school district, and where it is, you know, I can envision uh, the quality of schools and how modern they are and all that other stuff. But as a, 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 a person who comes from where you come from, are there times when you're like, I'm providing a skill set and acumen here in this place and I have this great job, but how do I utilize what I know from a historical perspective and what I know from a skill perspective to help my own people? Do you have that, that internal dialogue or thought at times? every single day. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's my, my, my thing about being in California in general, because mm -hmm. there's not a large Black population. But the, you, the, the beautiful part about this, if, uh, if I can say the unfortunate and beautiful part is that um, I work in, for Santa Ana Unified, which is uh, one of the highest densely populated um, areas outside of, this, of Mexico the country of what his of Hispanics. And so if, if I could compare it to anything, it's like Atlanta for Hispanics. And so the, the school district that I serve is 95% um, Hispanic and 84% free and reduced lunch. So um, I, in the middle of one of the richest counties, uh, lies this neighborhood with this inequality um, that I'm able to contribute to. So a part of me feels like I'm contributing to kids that come from homes like mine um, and uh, we have similar backgrounds outside of, of this cultural difference and maybe a language uh, barrier. But I love, love, love uh, working uh, in this community, which is so rich and uh, strong and diverse and united in ways in which I have have I've, I just value so much. And uh, there's so much similarities. And so a, a part of me feels like, wow, I wish there were a role that existed um, in a, a space that were a bit more. Um, Black, if I'm honest, that um, I could give back to because there's so much. But a part of me feels like get the, get the skill sets, master the craft, and then become a teacher uh, for others in a maybe a consultant role or something 
uh, that goes out into other spaces. Uh, but yeah, I, I deal with this every single day and saying, you aren't serving. I'm, I'm not pouring back into people that poured into me. And uh, and so I felt that's the only thing that every day I kind of think about, like, you got to get back to giving back to people. And also as a planning commissioner um, for the city of Costa Mesa, the city of Costa Mesa is less than 2% Black. And so, um, but I'm a Black person on that, that commission. And the way in which I think about every development decision or vote that I make that I pass on to council or that stops at that seat, I talk as if this city is uh, full of 100,000 Black folks. Uh, but I tell them, I'm here and I want to create pathways for people that look like me to also live here as well. And so I, I think as if this is Atlanta and I am planning for a Black community because I realize that due to the historic inequality and the way in which the city was built and designed and the way in which uh, racial policies, um, housing policies, um, all of those things have built and allowed people to build wealth and establish that basically blocks a certain demographic of people from being able to buy and or live here um, in, in, in certain areas. So I, but, but for me, I'm like, well, how do we create those opportunities? How do we create more affordable housing? How do we create more housing? Because now it's not only just Black folks being impacted, it's young white people that can't live here as well. And it's some people that are being priced out. And so now it's a larger concern uh, that people are commuting in and then having to commute out, which creates traffic and environmental concerns long-term. So it's just like our zoning right now is not aligned with our growing population because we have a lot of single-family zoning, and that just doesn't allow for the type of uh, population growth because we need more apartments. It doesn't allow people to buy in um, in terms of uh, two-family or maybe it's a, um, a townhome or a duplex or, or things like that. We, we're missing that type of what's called middle housing uh, and just a diverse housing uh, structure. This has become, has been historically what's called a bedroom community uh, with just only, you know, single-family homes. Like So people kind of commute out to LA or to San Diego and then they commute back into their comfort of Orange County, but it's changing. It's becoming like a younger city. Um, and so we have to change our housing policies. We have to change our comprehensive plan. Um, we have to change uh, our, our documents in a way um, and development patterns and allow people to build here uh, that have historically been blocked out and change um, those industry patterns and things. So a lot of mixed use, because typically with zoning, it's kind of like industrials over here, residentials over here. Um, and you know, all of that type of stuff. But now it's like, we got to think about, uh, compatible uses, um, uh, that allow for, um, traditionally what in, in the field of planning, it's called Euclidean zoning, which is, um, like kind of block everything kind of separated. But in reality, we know that I want to live next to a target, you know, or I want to live next to, um, I want to say Walmart, but, uh, I want to, I don't want to live next to an airport, but if I do, how can we create it uh, in a manner that's sustainable? Because I stay five minutes away from an airport, but um, the policies in which governs those planes, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. The first plane flies out at 7.15 in the morning and the last one flies in by 9 uh, or 8.45, 9 at night. So I'm not really, it's not constant. It's a small airport too. But, you know, it, we got to think about the, the governance of those things. But um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Uh, <laughs> We, as you should know by now, we let go guests go where they want to go. Stop, stop worrying about whether you're answering. Yeah, but, yeah, but, that, but, but yeah. that's it. So yeah, I think about that. But I, I, I think about how do I plan 
to create opportunities for young people. I'm, I'm the first youngest person on this planet. Commission has typically mm-hmm. been um, governed by you know older white men. And uh, I kind of talked my way into being appointed by uh, the mayor. Uh, met him somewhere. I was like, "Hey, I'm I volunt- I want to volunteer. Well, I applied to volunteer. I got interviewed, and somebody that's an outsider. I had never lived here, um, but I know my stuff. I know planning very well, um, and I could talk about it. I was like, I had worked in the city government. I had administered and uh, managed a, a, a board before, so I understood the what it what it took in order to make it work and how these decisions are made." Um, young, first black, and uh, making it happen, and you know, and so I, I, I shape people because um, when you know um, any black issue is happening, I'm talking about it, you know, in my public comments, and you know, for a community that has not had to talk about race um, or history, we have to talk about it because I'm here, and I think a beautiful part is I'm. I think that's why God, you know, kind of navigates me in a way that he asked, he's like, I need you to show up here. And I bring my whole self, my whole self in this place. And I used to be scared. I, I probably would like dial back. And I'm not, I mean, if I'm honest, I'm nervous still sometimes when I speak, but I say what needs to be said um, because I understand that I, I'm here. And the only way I'm going to get more people like me in this space and in this community and get white folks to understand uh, the plight or at least to, un- to hear the plight of black folks is to to for them to to hear somebody that they respect like me, or I think they respect me at least, um, and just to hear my narrative and to hear that hey I have these experiences and you think that I'm a, a well spoken black person and here I am I got stopped by the police while running in this community where I live but luckily my experience isn't like the other experiences of uh, maybe Ahmaud Aubrey or uh, anybody else who has been stopped by the police because. After the in- interaction, I can call the mayor and and say, "Hey, this is what happened to me." And I I get I get the call from the chief and the city manager the next day because of who I am in the city. Uh, but everybody doesn't have those protections, and a part of me remains on this commission because I know that those protections are there. And if I were just another black man, you know, that might not be there. So a part of me getting into public service roles in this space and being seen. Is so white folks will know who I am, um, and it's a form of protection. So um, that's a whole piece as well, as well that black folks have to do to be considered a safe Negro um, in in a in a white space. Absolutely, and we could have a whole separate episode just on that. Um, but since you brought up housing, I do want to touch on something because you know we often talk about wealth generation in the black community and creating this legacy and being able to pass something down. And, you know, we, we've, I know you've probably been in spaces where folks who don't look like us say, you know, my grandfather came to this country and bought a small plot of land and did this. And then my dad did this and whatever, not understanding the structural inequality and the proactive policies to prevent black people from owning property. Right. So, but as we all get woke and you get educated and stuff. We learn about the Homestead Act. You learn about redlining, which actually prevented us from obtaining mortgages to live in certain communities. And I've heard people say like, oh, well, redlining is illegal now. Like, what are you, what are people still having a gripe about? A, not understanding how that has had a generational impact on us as a people, but also not really taking or having an appreciation for the fact that redlining may not be uh, legal in the way that you know and you recognize, but if you look at the subprime mortgage crisis mm-hmm. and how that impacted communities, it disproportionately affected us. So yeah. you had 
Black folks taking on mortgages that they couldn't afford, the balloon payment comes and going into foreclosure and how that impacted, say, communities like PG County that yeah. had an incredibly high uh, population or, or had of upperly mobile Black folk, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it really set us back in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. But do you feel that, A, the damage that was done in the 08, you know, the, the 08 crisis when the bubble burst is reparable right? If we can make up for lost ground in our lifetime, number one. And do you think the regulatory and planning bodies are doing enough to remediate some of that damage that was done at, at after the 08 crisis? No, um, to, just a hard no. Um, to both answers, if we are not doing enough, the regulatory bodies are not, we are in a housing crisis as a country. And unless we have some housing policies from a federal level um, that provides the capacity for us to lend um, and also uh, make up for losses, then we will not be able to make this up in our lifetime. And and maybe not the lifetimes of our our children (laughs) and in in some respects because of the next generation. Because um, just thinking about the state of California, you know, people are being priced out that have lived here their entire lives, like both white and black folks. And I think that unless we have in this next administration a really comprehensive um, housing strategy that allows people to buy in safely into different markets, but also uh, changes uh, a lot of the zoning policies. And the unfortunate part is a lot of those are governed locally. Um, thank God here in the state of California, we have, uh, we're, we're, they're, they're putting different levers in, like you can't get certain funding, uh, federal funding or state funding if you aren't showing that you are building capacity for uh, affordable housing or that your developers have certain um, uh, affordable housing number units um, in their new development or that you aren't rezoning certain areas that historically have been single family or zoned for industrial use in order to make a capacity for new growth. Because some cities, uh, especially here in, in Southern California, have uh, in the cases that have gone all the way up into the Supreme Court, have uh, historically just created uh, zoning that not only prevents people from being able to buy in, but from developers being able to build there that would allow a certain demographic of people uh, class to come in. And so, but they, what they don't realize is that they're doing damage to themselves because the workers that work in those communities have to commute in and out, creating traffic and congestion along those ways. Whereas people will walk or commute in other ways using public transit or maybe um, to get there and to get to work um, in those in those those places. And so I think that unless we have in this next administration, which I hope um, and I hadn't unfortunately seen on the Biden or Harris uh, any of any, any of their policies, because I, I I don't think they fully understood uh, only person and maybe there's a bit of a bias here that I think comprehensively understood the policies that needed to be changed was Elizabeth Warren. And she had a a strong plan uh, that really addressed this in a comprehensive manner that went down to the nuts and bolts of looking at uh, lot sizes. She got it. I mean, she literally got it. I don't know who wrote her plan, but it was one of the most well thought out plans. And then the second person to that was Julian Castro, uh, who was the former secretary of HUD. I think he understood it in a very comprehensive way and manner that uh, is it's, it's unseen and probably will be untold since he's been kind of pushed out due to the way in which he ran his campaign. But I, um, I hope 
that they adopt one of Elizabeth Warren's or Julian Castro's plans um, because Ben Carson, the current secretary of HUD, has not advanced, uh, has not really thought uh, in comprehensively or in an advanced way about this. And uh, the, the the unique part, and this is kind of like my passion, is there's a strong internet intersection between housing and education that I think is is not discussed enough. So I I'm often advocating to every federal, <laughs> hey, create a secretary of HUD position or education piece for me because y'all aren't talking to each other and y'all need to be talking. Cities don't talk to schools. And um, we build big schools. We build uh, big uh, auditoriums and things for cities and they never talk to each other. Like the planning work that I do for a school and the planning work that I did for a city, we never talk to each other, but we end up bumping heads because there's two different regulatory bodies and thinking about, uh, we don't even think about where we should cite schools, where schools should go. Um, and it's done in a very different way that the city isn't aware of to where, hey, we're building an apartment complex, but um, where are those kids going to go to school? Oh, we need a new school. Where's that school going to be? Oh, we got to talk to the school district. And I think we have to think more um, comprehensively, holistically, and um, in a step-by-step manner, but there's not policy. There's literally not policies that govern this right now. And I literally yell from the mountaintops, like, talk to your school districts, school districts, talk to your cities. Uh, but since there's a city council and a school board and they don't talk to each other, it's just like people building schools, people, um, kids walking in unsafe neighborhoods because there's not sidewalks to get them safely to school or not street lights to get them there. And it's just because two people who have two big budgets are not thinking and collaborating on planning and they're duplicating in most cases infrastructure and services. And so I advocate for joint policies and transactions. And that's what I did when I was a consultant, uh, but I did it at the university level. Um, so now that I'm at the K-12 level, I'm literally telling our school district and creating pathways for our school district to work with the city, um, especially since I, I work as a, uh, well, I'm, I sit on the planning commission to how can we think about this in a, a comprehensive manner? Because this is a big city. We have 52 schools and every block there's a different school. We need to make sure that the city has the infrastructure set aside and the capital um, budgets in order to ensure that our kids not only can get to and from school safely, but that our communities in which they're coming from are are, are service. And, and, I, and I, the only person that has done this successfully is Jeffrey Canada with the Harlem's Children's Zone. And because he he did a very, he, he came in with more, he came in and looked at not a charter school, but he came in and looked at city blocks as, as communities and literally transformed an entire generation of families by, by thinking from the cradle uh, to college uh, and, and instituting programs in a very comprehensive way by working with the city. And I think that model can be scaled across uh, the country in a way that it hasn't been. And I'm like yelling at the secretary of education, not this one, uh, but the HUD secretary and the secretary of education, like, hey, check that out. Do that, scale that model because we can literally save so much money and be more collaborative with those public-public and public-private partnerships that need to exist um, because our teachers, which are coming to our schools, they need to be able to, they, they can't afford to live in our, in our communities, but we want them there. We want our firefighters in our community. We want our police officers and our public servants in our communities. Well, most of them don't live there. That's a different story. But the teachers, at least, how do we create policies and housing that supports them? Um, and, and 
and, and capacity for them. So it's, this is literally, this, this is when, when it gets to, this is my life. This is what I'm passionate about. Like making sure that this happens before I die, that there are policies in place that people think uh, strategically and comprehensively about that interconnection, that nexus piece between schools and communities. And so that's what I want to happen. Like if somebody would just hire me to, to do that, like, let me help you, please. So, so knowing what you know, knowing what's possible versus mm-hmm. what's reality today, how do you maintain your sanity and peace? Because I know that um, I'm playing my part. And I realized that I used to think you got to do it all. But all you got to do is plant the seed. Maybe somebody hears this podcast. Maybe somebody reads my thesis. Maybe somebody uh, bumps into me on, and I, I start talking about my work at the airport. Uh, maybe one of my line brothers uh, works for uh, the administration now. And so, uh, well, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> and uh, maybe he tells them, but I, I literally, I'm on Facebook. I'm talking about it all the time to my network of people. Um, and I'm educating my, my community, which is black, white, and, and full of other folks uh, that have found their way to my, that platform. And uh, I'm literally doing videos through um, something I call the keynote. Um, and I pretty much will publish a video maybe every Friday uh, about something planning related, but how it relates to like an everyday issue in America. And so uh, specifically like COVID-19, I did that from a planning perspective. And I talked about the impact of health from a historical perspective and cemeteries and all that stuff like that. So I know that deep down I'm playing my part, that I'm leaving something for people to pick up um, that I know that they can learn from, that's relatable, that is digestible um, for my folks. I need to make sure that Black folks can get this and not only hear like, oh my God, he's a smart guy. Like Because if I'm talking and y'all not understanding, then that does no good. That, that's nothing for nobody. So I, I, the good part about it is I can code switch, but I also can just speak to my people in a way that is... I feel like uh, compre- comprehensive and also like where they can understand and digest it and talk to people. My thesis advisors always tell me if like if, if a fourth grader can't understand it, you don't know what you're talking about. And so I just try to keep it simple, stupid and uh, realize that people understand. They understand planning because it impacts them every day. They just they just have never heard of it as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, they understand education policy. They understand school planning. They just have never heard it as, but if you get a parent to talking about, why does my kid got to walk three miles to school? If I explain the path backwards uh, of the school siting process, they get it. And I think if no one else should be planners in this world, it's women. Mm -hmm. Women know and experience the world very differently than men in the built environment. And you think about the city of New York, the reason why a lot of the infrastructure looks the way it do, even just thinking about I remember reading one story of when they were building those subways in, in New York. It's like, although lifts and elevators didn't really exist in, in the way that they, they do now, a lot of that infrastructure was there because there were men and there weren't women that were commuting with children in carriages or, or, or strollers to, to, to think about, oh, I, I, need, I probably need to think about how do women get down there with strollers without you know the assistance. It's insane. But when you have women that are not in the in the room or are planning, even the, the our path of travel as men is different because women are more than likely to drop the children off. They're more than likely to go to grocery stores. So men who are the planners and, and thinking about how our roads and development patterns and where we allow retail to go, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes you got to go here and, and there. It's like, who thought of this? It definitely was not a woman because 
women are thinking in their path to travel, like of what they need to do. Maybe they need to pick up something at the grocery store, all those types of things. And it's just done poorly because it's not, uh, it's not, there's no gender diversity um, in it. And I think we need more women in the planning space um, to think about how our cities, our world would look differently if we have more women in planning, because it would just be be passionate. So I feel comfortable because um, I got a niece, I have two nieces that I could, I could pour into that could be planners. Um, but also I, I feel more optimistic uh, about what is to come. And I'm, I'm, I'm always hopeful because I know where I come from and I know where I am now. So I know that as long as I'm leaving a world uh, that's better for, for young black boys, um, and I don't know, maybe I, I won't even know my legacy. I think uh, Maya Angelou told Oprah that you don't even know, you won't even know your legacy. So, uh, but I'm trying to do as much as I can with the time that God has given me uh, to, to make a difference. Um, and so that's, that's what makes me sleep at night. I ain't God. I'm, I'm just key. <laughs> that's, that, that's literally my, my tagline. I'm just key. I'm not nobody special. I'm just, I'm just doing what I can while I can with what I can. You just spoke a whole word. I know that. <laughs> So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Why you do this to me? Um, all right. So um, this is going to be long, obviously, but also it is, um, I think it ended up being like uh, one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. Um, it was the day my grandmother died. Um, it was August the 15th. 2010. And I, I just become, I was just elected um, student body president that May. I was, I had just crossed into the fraternity that May. Um, I was entering my senior year of college um, and I wanted my grandmother to see me graduate. And I was playing flag football and uh, I was in the middle of um, moving uh that weekend it was a i think it was a saturday and um my brother who never calls me because as i stated we weren't as close but we were i was i was in college at the time and he calls and uh i knew something was wrong he's not because he's he's not a fuck person that picks up the phone either and um he said two words to me he said granny's gone and um <laughs> I I remember thinking, okay, all right. I was um, I, I I was with my line brothers um, and my fraternity brothers and pro fights, and I went into just mo go mode. I called one of my my fraternity brothers and said, "Hey, this has happened. I need you to communicate this to everyone um, and uh, let them know that you know I'm off the grid for this is what's going on." I went to, um, I was driving my line brother's car because he had a, a bigger car than I did and he was, I was moving and uh, I was moving to an, a different residence hall on campus. And uh, so my stuff was in between two places. I, I couldn't, I couldn't even cry. I couldn't even cry. I went to the apartment complex, had to unpack to pack, um, didn't know how long this thing would be. I lived five hours from um, Houston and East Texas was a five hour commute. And so I went home, um, people were calling me and, and, uh, from, from home and I wasn't answering. And, uh, 
because I knew that that would take me out of it. And I, I called my who would the person who would become my executive vice president. And I, I said to her, hey, this is what's happened. I'm not sure when I'll be back on campus. Um, everything is in place in order for us to begin the next year um, because school was going to start that next week and I was going to be student body president. Biggest period of my life, welcome week, everything. I was supposed to be talking to all of these new groups and all of these things. I said, it's go time. You have to literally do what it is that you said you would do when you ran um, and step up because I'm not going to be here. I um, went to my office. I grabbed a photo of my grandmother that I have. Um, I put it in my car. I got in my little Tudor Honda. I got on the interstate. I got home and well, I got to the house and I had a little bit of daylight. It was about uh, five o'clock. And I remember arriving and my entire family, those cousins and uncles that I talked about were there waiting for me to get there because they knew the relationship that my grandmother and I had. Um, and they all were expecting me to, to be weak, to crumble, to be crying. I uh, went in the house and uh, they looked at me. They were laughing, doing what black folks do when folks die, you know, playing cards, spades and fan blowing dirt. I don't know why that fan was there. I still don't understand that. It was blowing dirt. <laughs> and uh, I took a 15-minute nap. I got up. I wrote the obit for my grandmother. Uh, I started planning and, and working on what we needed to do next in order to pay for the funeral. Um, and start thinking about books and finances and, and how this would work. Um, like I said, I was on all of her documents and, and things, so I kind of knew where everything was her medical documents and everything and uh, worked with my mom and uh, selecting the funeral direct, you know, everything. And uh, I um, picked out the clothes with, with them and wigs and everything, things you don't think about you have to do, the casket. And, and uh, my entire, one thing I didn't expect was my entire line, most of my line brothers and fraternity brothers commuted those that five hours and came to the funeral um, for my grandmother. And that, that, was a, that was a day that I had to be strong uh, in, in ways in which were unimaginable because I didn't know that, I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't really lost in anyone, maybe a, a great uncle when I was 10. I hadn't really experienced a loss that close to me that was so meaningful. And, and I thought that I would crumble um, and I did not. Um, in the way that I felt like I did. And I, and, I, and I reflect on that. I had to just go. Everything that she had taught me, I had to do in an extraordinary way. Uh, and I just went into just, and I, and I reflect on it like, how? And then after her service, I went to school on Monday and I was the student body leader. <laughs> and I stepped back into that role and I worked my butt off. I had the best semesters of my life uh, well, of my academic career, honestly, and uh, had a 4.0 and uh, exceeded all expectations. And I just, I felt like she was there. Um, the beautiful part is the entire, the beautiful part about being at an HBCU, I guess, as well, they understood the loss of a grandmother. That word had traveled. And the way in which they, uh, I don't want to cry, <laughs> but the way in which they, they showered and supported me, um, was like so rich and powerful and and they believed in me and loved me and they were just like 
How can everything go right? And this is what that what hit me so much. How can everything go right? I'm an alpha. I'm SGA president. I am like in, you know, at the top of my game, I feel that my world crumbles because my grandmother is not there. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that I would, I would have traded everything for for that. Just more time with her, for her to see me graduate. Um, And so that was a time that I had to be extraordinary. And to your point about therapy, I didn't cry. I literally did not cry. I'm a little sensitive. Um, I didn't cry until I lived in Eastern Europe. I was, uh, and that was five years later, I was asleep and um, I woke up out of my dream crying. Um, And it was, I felt like my grandmother saying, let me go um, and live, live, you live your life, let me go. And um, it was kind of one of those dreams. And I woke up out of that dream crying. I mean, crying in a way that I had never cried before. And I, ended up writing about it and and thinking about a lot of things like the relationship with my father that didn't exist. Um, and it was just, it was like a, a moment of release. Um, so I, it ended up in a five year extraordinary <laughs> moment, but that was a day. That was a day that I'll never forget. But again, my family leaned on me. They cried. They cut up. They cut up like uh, never before. You would have thought that they were the closest of friends. At the funeral, I had to stand strong uh, and make sure that everything was in order. I could not emotionally process that moment because I had to make sure that every single thing went right. Mm-hmm. And so um, it would have been against my grandmother's, uh, everything she taught me to be crying and tripping up when I needed to be the rock that I am for my family um, at that moment. So you mentioned the release that you had, but do you think that you've had in the last 10 years the space to really grieve properly? No, no. And I think um, a part of my work and research has been me, back to that point I said earlier, yearning for those moments of answering questions. I study a lot of memory and trauma, and that's what I did when I was overseas and and, and trying to understand memory and trauma, but it was all about my grandmother's college, uh, well, high school experiences. It's, it, was, it was really weird. Um, I, but I, I journal and I feel like, you know, this is me processing it, but no, because, um, I never talked about this publicly, but, um, I feel like you don't know who you are till you know who you come from. I know my mom intimately. My dad lived less than five miles away from me. He has a close relationship with my, my sister. Uh, but he's not someone that I know. And I think that I won't become the man that I'm supposed to be fully until I know my dad until we've had a conversation um, that would allow, and I've never really felt a void in my life for him because he wasn't around enough for me to miss him. And I knew who he was, he knows who I am. And I think there have been inroads and attempts to create and fortify some type of relationship and bond. I'm just an adult now and really just don't have the time if I'm honest. Um, But it's, I think me being able to emotionally process and grieve um, a part of that is understanding, you know, you, you got to take some step back and understanding who you are. Um, cause that's who I am. Maybe my dad went through this, you know, maybe so much of who I am and so much of the things that I think I experienced, like he experienced as well. Um, and I just, I just don't know. Um, and I want to have those, maybe one day have that conversation. 
um, and to learn so much about him. Um, but I think that uh, I haven't learned how to grieve in way I I I bust a tear every now and again. Um, but in terms of really processing stuff, nah. Like I don't really be processing stuff. Uh, it, it happens over time and through podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. So yeah, it's it's I I as as a person, I've been trying to find a therapist. My grandmother obviously, so I value mental health. Uh, not afraid of it. Don't think it's weird or anything. But I want a black therapist, and uh, that's just it's just been hard to find and hasn't I haven't made it a priority honestly because I just write in my journal and I talk to the guy and I'm like we good I got that out I'm good I'll make it you know and I just make it to the next day and I take it a day at a time you know um and until I think I'm I snap um which I, I pray to God I don't I got enough releases um and I, I try to control vices to ensure that you know that doesn't become a dependency at all uh because that could that could be a thing but you know, I, I, I'm appreciative of my community. I consider myself a village child of being grounded. And uh, the great thing about being around Black women is um, having friends, being friends with Black women is they force you to talk about things uh, even when you don't want to. And they for, they, my, my Black female friends have uh, pushed me in ways by asking priming questions. Y'all, y'all, y'all real smart. <laughs> uh, and getting things out of me. And, uh, and and making me be vulnerable uh, in ways that sometimes I don't want to be. But thinking about who I am and why that happened. And why do you do that? Why why do you do that? And I think a part of that, you know, in order for me to have a successful relationship, like all of these things, like a lot of that stuff is trauma with childhood that people don't even know they carry it. Um, so sometimes I don't even know why I behave or do the things or sabotage relationships. Uh, because of- Ooh, wait, that's, we, we've gone through a couple of different other episodes we can have definitely <laughs> one yeah but yeah that's that's that I, I do a lot of those things I'm recognizing it now because you know a couple of times you go like it's you mm-hmm. uh, it's little you it's it's the kid inside of you uh, it's not you as the man but you can't be the man that you need to be because the kid inside of you needs something that he didn't get mm-hmm. uh, and and you need to feed nurture and and develop that kid inside of you uh so that you can be who you need to be fully so uh that's something that uh i work and stride at can't believe i said that publicly but here we are we bring it out of people on this show (laughs) so i want to make sure we end on the positive note and as someone who was i feel everything you're saying about your relationship with your your grandmother so i want to really make sure we end there what do you think she'd be most proud of with respect to your journey to date? Mm. <laughs> uh, why you do this? Because uh, <laughs> it's what I do. Uh, um, what would she be most proud of? Uh, I think she would just be most proud of like not anything that I accomplished, um, but or not any place that I've been. She would just be proud of me, you know, that as a product of someone who came from people with nothing, that I got something, but I also know who I am in a way that I am still respectful, I'm mindful, and the things in which she poured into me that I listened, 
that's what she would be most proud of, that I listened, that I took note of everything that she tried to teach me. Uh, not that I'm not, not that I haven't failed along the way a lot, but that I listened and took note of all the things that she was trying to teach me along the way. I think she would really, really tell me, baby boy, you're doing a good job with that. So yeah, she'd be proud of me, me listening. Well, baby boy, congratulations. You survived a conversation on the December 26th podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you'd be all right. Yeah. I have, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, You've, maintained what has become a custom and that alphas talk longer than anybody uh, we bring on the show. <laughs> Just cut it all out. Some of that stuff. Nope, it, we're letting this one roll unedited, okay? <laughs> unedited for content, let's say that. But I, 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 I'm, I'm joking on you, but no, this has been an amazing conversation. We've touched on a lot of things, both personally and professionally, and you're a smart brother, I gotta say. And, and more self-aware than I think you might give yourself credit for. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Uh, The conversation took a turn. I thought we would end up talking about politics. uh, Right. It was uh, on the list, but it went, this is why we allow things to unfold as they unfold, right? So So, yeah, I uh, definitely need a drink. (laughs) A drink and a nap. That's customary after appearing on the December 26th podcast. (laughs) So where can people find you online? Um... So you can find me obviously on Facebook with old people um, where I still reside. Uh, You can follow me on the keynote, which is my page, or you can add me uh, at Key Colbert uh, on on Facebook. You can follow me um, on Instagram or Twitter, which is, that's that's all I have is at I'm Just Key. Um, Spell that for the people. I am just J-U-S-T-K-E underscore. Um, on both platforms, uh, both pages are open. <laughs> so feel free to, to jump in, follow, and, and, and hear me talk about random stuff of just, uh, just being me. Um, and I'll be sharing about planning commission stuff. I talk about politics. I do Facebook Lives. I did a whole series on this debate that just happened, the debates that happened and talking about this administration that's forthcoming. But yeah, so yeah, I'll be talking about those things. You can follow me if you're interested or, or just want to take a peek um, if it gets boring, but yeah, that's it. You're educating the people and I love it. <laughs> so to our listeners, if you heard something in this conversation that has piqued your interest, make sure you go follow Kadarius online. He's going to probably get into a lot of things we didn't even get to get into on this show. He is really freaking out right now. So people will hear this on audio first and like he's having a moment over here about this experience. I tried to warn him. I told him it would be fine. (laughs) Go follow him, support him in the work that he's doing to really educate our communities on the things that matter to us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I ask every week, make sure you like, share and subscribe. Tell somebody about it. We are eternally grateful for your support, especially those that keep coming back week after week to listen to these conversations. And as always, don't forget, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 